All right. Ephesians 6, we're walking through the armor of God. So why don't we just read these verses together so we can all familiarize ourselves with where we're at. Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says, finally, sort of in what we talked about in the beginning of pregame speech, right? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Listen, all of our strength, all of our source of hope, all of, all of it comes from whom? Nope, comes from whom? Right? Comes from Jesus. Somebody say Jesus, right? Listen, this is a spiritual battle we're talking about, right? We're talking about a spiritual enemy. And the reality is Jesus defeated that enemy. So he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power that he used to defeat Satan. Makes sense to everybody? You cannot defeat him on your own. The strength to defeat the enemy in that realm will come only from Jesus. Amen? Right? So your relationship to Jesus, understanding not only were you saved, right, through your faith in Jesus and the grace of God, but every bit of power, every bit of success that you need, right, as you walk in this world, as you live in your families, as you try to be successful in your marriage, as you try to do all of these things. Listen, all of that comes with the power, right, the strength that Jesus used to defeat Satan. So he says, be strong in that. Right? And he says, here's how you do it. Put on what? Full armor of God. You, too many of us have been told that that's a day-to-day activity. We now know you do it how many times? Once and it lasts forever. Right? In the aorist, this is something that we do once in the past. And its results are completed within the action. So when you put on the armor of God, the simple act of putting it on also completes the action. It's not something you walk into and take out of based upon how you feel every day, based on how much strength you have in that day. What we get in Jesus is what Paul says in Galatians 3, those of you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Amen? Right? That's your standing. So when you say, when he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, the way to do it is to put on the armor of God. So he says, put on the full armor of God. Why? So you could take your stand because you got to stand because the word he's going to use over and over again is stand. He's not going to say fight. He's not going to say battle. He's going to use the word wrestle, right? Or struggle, which is a far cry from a battle. But he says, you're going to need to take your stand against the devil's what? Right? Military plans. That's a military word. Listen, Satan and his cronies scheming against you. They're scheming against your spouse. They're scheming against your children. They're scheming against all of us. There is a plan in place to steal, kill, and destroy you and I from Satan. Because according to Revelation, he's the one that leads the whole world astray, right? You got to know that. So here's the plans. You've got to stand against them. That's all you got to do. How do you do it? You take on the armor of God. And he says in verse 12, for our struggle, right? (coughs) That word is the idea of rubbing two pieces of paper together or two objects together. And the vibration that's caused from that is what he's talking about. That kind of pressure, right? If you take your hands and rub them together really, really hard, the friction and the vibration that comes from that activity is that Greek word. It's not standing side by side and taking your, 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 your knife and deciding, hey, we're having a fight to the death. That's not the picture here. The reality is, when it comes to Satan, if we use the might of Jesus, we've already won. Somebody say amen. Somebody in here made me a beautiful t-shirt that says already won. Are you in here? Anybody is the person that made me that shirt in here? Well, maybe they're watching online, but they made a wonderful shirt from this series called already won. Listen, we've already won in Jesus over him. So what's left? There's no more battles. The battle was won by Jesus. We celebrated the victory through our faith in him. Now we just have friction. We just have the struggle, right? Anybody relate to the struggle, right? We all get that, right? But it's not a battle 
for supremacy because in Jesus, we've already won that. So he says our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. This is going to come into play tonight, right? Our fight is not against human beings. Why? Because God died for who? Us, for human beings, right? Why would we pick a fight against those people that the Bible says God so loved, all of them that he gave his only begotten son, that they might believe in him and be saved? Too many times within the church, we make other people the enemy. That's why Jesus said, pray for those folks. Do good to those folks, right? Why? Because we want them to be saved. Yes or no? Right? Now listen, I get that that's all intellectual. I get it's all academic. It's a whole different feeling when that person that is, quote, your enemy is betraying you, divorcing you, cheating on you, beating on you, firing on, firing you. I get it, right? We're not, we're not pretending that these things aren't real, right? It's just a reminder that what we're fighting here is spiritual and not physical, right? It's spiritual and not physical. And aren't you grateful? Because at least half of you are built, half of you online are built with the fight or flight mechanism. And your natural response to any conflict is to flee. Any of you in here that when it comes to conflict, you flee? Let me see you. Come on. Right? And then some of you are built to fight in conflict. Let me see you. Right? There you go. And then some of you aren't participating. Right? And those of you that didn't participate, let's be clear, you're fleers. Okay? You already made your choice by not raising your hand, right? Aren't you grateful that you don't have to fight Satan? Because if you did, half of us or more would fail because we want to do anything we can to avoid conflict. Aren't you grateful you don't have to do that? I am. So he says our struggle isn't against people, but here's who we fight. Rulers, rulers, right? Of rulers, right? Against powers, of the dark world against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Listen, we are in a spiritual battle. And the reality is the only weapons that work in a spiritual realm are spiritual weapons. Yes or no? Listen, we're not going to win this thing by being better in the flesh. If you think you're going to win a spiritual fight by being better in the flesh, the enemy's got you right where he wants you. Right? We often think that the way to overcome the enemy is by getting better in the flesh. Not doing any good. Right? It's not doing any good. Listen, read Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus talks about demons, right? And he talks about the house that had the demons. And when the demons left, the owner of the house just cleans it up and makes it really, really pretty. And guess what happens? They'll really clean a pretty house. Doesn't deter the demons. The demons come back and they bring all their friends. Because guess what? They didn't do anything to prepare for the spiritual battle ahead. And the enemy, right, brings his friends. And Jesus says the condition now is far worse than the condition was in the beginning. Because too many of us think that the way that we get better is we just try harder. We just don't sin as much. We just pray more. Listen, we have all that we need in Jesus. Somebody say amen. It's all in the armor because these powers, these rulers, these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, they're carrying out the devil's schemes. They're carrying out the devil's plans against you, against your families, against your children, right? Against your finances. They're at work against you. So he says in verse 13, right? He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. Again, in the heiress, meaning you do it how many times? Once. It lasts for how long? Forever. He said, you need to get suited up with Jesus so that when that day of evil, right, that master scheme comes to bear on your family, when that day of evil comes, you may be able to what? Stand, right? All you got to do is stand, Right? You just got to stand. And in the Greek, that word means to what? Stand. Right? That's all it means. You just have to be remaining. Right? You got to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to what? Stand. Guess what you do? You stand firm. Because now once you've weathered the storm to stand, now your job is to stand firm. Nowhere in there does he say, pick a fight with your neighbor. 
Nowhere in there does he say you need to carry a club of truth so you can win this fight of truth. He says, stand. And when you've done all to stand, stand firm with the belt of truth. Right? And he tells you what to do with that truth. Do what with it? Buckle it around your waist. Don't pull it out and use it as a weapon. The belt of truth is designed for who? Me. So I can what? Stand. Because guess what the devil's going to do? He's going to lie to you. He's going to deceive you. He's going to convince you that right is wrong and wrong is right. That's his job. He's a liar and a deceiver and an accuser. So guess what you need to stand? You need the what? You need the truth. You need the truth. And this church ever quits preaching truth, flee and find a church that does. Because there are churches everywhere that are fleeing the truth. And the reason they're fleeing the truth is they're in hopes, they're in hopes, right, that we won't offend anybody. Listen, you and I are the ones to put on the armor of God who know Jesus and we should take the belt and buckle it around us. Don't whip it out like my dad used to do. My dad would whip his belt off whenever he wanted to whip us as children. The most terrifying sound in the world was listening to that belt come out of his pants. Right? Because my dad didn't use the belt to buckle his pants. He used it as a weapon. Nowhere in scripture is truth labeled as a weapon. It's labeled as a support object for everything else you will carry. Because who needs it? You do. Because Satan's a liar. So he says, buckle the belt. Then he says, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. We spent three weeks on that. Because everything about you and I being right with God depends on somebody else besides us. Because we all know We've done the right thing to do. We haven't done it. We all know there's been times where we knew the wrong thing to do and we did it anyway. Yes or no? Listen, you may not be fan of the fact that God, God has no room for any failure because his nature is so holy, but that's something you'll have to take up with him. No need for me or no need for the church to argue with you about that. That's just something you'll have to deal with God for yourself on. But he says, you need the breastplate of righteousness. You need to be covered in a way that you can stand before God right. And guess what? We get to do that through who? Jesus. Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to become our sin offering. Right? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. How many of you are grateful for that? That righteousness that you have in Jesus never wanes. Your righteousness stinks. My righteousness stinks, right? There's days you feel like you're a 95 percenter. And there's days you know you're a 40 percenter, right? And guess what? You've been convinced that your standing with God is dependent upon your righteousness. It's not. It's not. Your righteousness before God is dependent upon who? And if your righteousness before God is the righteousness of Jesus, it's 100% all the time. Somebody say amen. Listen, that's a truth. You can buckle around your waist because Satan's going to convince you on the days that you're 40, you're a zero. He's going to convince you that you're no longer in good standing. Is that true? No, because in Jesus, you're always what percentage? Come on, say that like you mean it. 100%. So when you get to feeling that way and you get to feeling that lie coming, what do you do with that truth? You speak that truth out. Listen, when Satan wants to convince you, you simply tell him that's not true. That through Jesus, I'm 100% baby. And use the phrase baby, okay? Or dude. Right? You know, if you listen to our new pastor, Aaron, you just say, dude, I'm a hundred percent. Right? Because that's what we are. Listen, do you know how much hate Satan hates for you to know that? He hates for you to know that you're standing in God with Jesus is righteous is a hundred percent all the time. Do you know how he hates you to know that more than anything? 
Because if he can get in just the slightest to convince you, listen, you can't pray to God today. You can't go to church today. You can't pretend to be a Christian today because do you remember what you did last night? Do you have any any idea what you've done the last week? Do you know what your last month looked like? Listen, when Satan tries to convince you of that, just call him a liar and quote 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 to him. Because he has no standing. Because your standing before God makes you right. Because Jesus' righteousness is yours. Because Jesus knew no sin. Guess how you're seen now. As one who's known no sin. Somebody say amen. Right? So he says put on breath place of righteousness. Right? Verse 15. Now he says... And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So I, I, uh, I, I told you before, grew up incredibly poor. One of the ways that poor was reflected in our house was that clothes from older siblings got passed down to younger siblings. Anybody live that life? Yeah, it's fun. Especially when I... Second in order was bigger, taller, smarter, more handsome than my brother, right? Sorry. But the biggest problem was, was that I was bigger and my feet were bigger. And so the one thing that I always hated was when my brother's shoes got passed down to me because they never fit, right? They just never fit. And I hated, hated That was the part of being, listen, of all the things that we endured being poor, top three was wearing my brother's shoes. I I don't know about you, but I hate wearing shoes that are too small for my feet. Now, some of you women live like that. God bless you. I don't know how you do it. All right. But wearing shoes that don't fit sort of stink. And my feet have suffered the consequence of that over the years, right? Paul says this. He says, our feet should be what? Fitted. So in the Greek, this is the idea that that these things are bound, right? That these things are bound to you. Now, in the Greek, you're going to be surprised at this. Your feet fitted. That's a verb. And in the, in the Greek, what tense do you think this is? Everybody say aorist. Right? Aorist, meaning something that happens back here, right? And in, in it happening back here, it happens once and it's completed once and it goes on. So those of us, check this out, those of us that have the armor of God have feet that are fitted, bound with what? The readiness that comes from the gospel of what? Peace. Every person who knows Jesus in here, online, say amen. He says, you have put on the full armor of God. Amen. Part of your equipment, your standard uniform is that your feet are fitted once back here, aorist tense, right? Aorist indicative tense. Right? That it happened back here. The action was completed back here. So now your shoes are what? Shoes that are ready, right? With the gospel of peace. Why do you think that we say all the time, every believer, right? Every believer should be in the business of getting the gospel to other people. Because what are we wearing? We're wearing shoes that are fitted when we knew Jesus or when we met Jesus. Our shoes that we wear are now bound to us and they are ready with the gospel of what? Peace. So think about it. Think about the churches that you know. And the churches that you hear, ask yourself, are these people preaching the gospel of peace? Too often they're not. Listen, I, like I said, I didn't grow up in church, but I've been in church since I was 17, which today, right, is 42 years. I've been a part of church for 42 years. That trumps my 17 years without, Right. And in 42 years of being a part of the church and watching the church and listening to church, I can tell you. 
that a large majority of people want nothing to do with church, which means they're going to have a hard time finding Jesus because most most churches don't come ready with the gospel of what? They don't come with that. They come with something completely different. And here's the thing. This word peace, irene in the Greek, shalom in the Hebrew, right? Irene is the idea of taking something and something else and joining them together to make them whole, right? Peace, right, is the idea that something that's separated is now whole. Guess what? You and I, who've accepted Jesus, at one point in time realized we were separated from God because of our sin. Through Jesus, we've been reconciled. Now we're at peace with God because of that Jesus. Somebody say amen. Guess what? If that's the gospel that we got, that's the gospel we should give away. But unfortunately, the gospel that we give away is the gospel that separates. Separated based on color. Separated based on economics. Separated based on silly, stupid beliefs about the colors of chairs and the paint on the walls and what outfits you should wear. And whether you have a tattoo or an earring or whether your hair is long or whether your hair is short. About whether we use pianos or we have a rock band. Over and over and over again, all we found that people that should be preaching a gospel of peace were people that preach nothing but what? Division. And guess what? Our churches aren't full. Our churches aren't full. Why would they be? Why would you want to come and be a part of that? And listen, there are lots and lots of you that have lived through that. There are, there are those of you in here and online that have family members that swear they'll never come back to church again. Listen, I stand, I stand in line in the cafe once in a while and I hear the way that we talk sometimes. And if visitors happen to be standing in front of you or behind you, most of the times I would be surprised if they don't just leave when they hear some of the conversation. But the gospel is a gospel of peace. Let's read some scriptures. All right. John 16, 33. John 16, 33 says this, right? Jesus writes, all right, you got 23. I want 33. So I'm going to let you find it, right? So John 16, 33, Jesus is in his, as in the upper room, right? Closing out the narrative in regard to, to the conversation with the disciples before he's arrested, right? And in John 16, 33, he finishes his narrative. And in John 16, 33, he says, in this world, you will have what? Anybody know the verse? You will have, he says, I've told you these things so that in you, that in me, you may have peace because in this world, you will have what? Right? Trouble. There's that word for struggle, right? It's this idea of friction, right? We live in a world where there is constant trouble, right? But he says in Jesus, you can have what? You can have peace. In a fractured world, you can be whole. In a broken world, you can be joined to something. You can be complete, right? Listen, we live in a world that is completely fractured. We live in a nation that's fractured, amen? Becoming more fractured every day, yes, right? I mean, that's all that the world creates is this kind of separation. Jesus provides what? In him, you can have what? Peace. You can find that completion. All these people that are searching for peace in the world, they're never going to find it because in this world, you'll have what? Trouble. There's no solution here. The solution is found in Jesus. Somebody say amen. Right? That's, that's our message. Our message is against this force of evil that's convincing millions upon billions of people that your solution for wholeness, completeness, and identity is found in the world when we know it's found only in who? Jesus. We know that completion can be created in him. How about this verse in Romans chapter 4, right? Romans chapter 4, verse 25. says, he was delivered, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Everybody say amen. Aren't you grateful Jesus died for your sins? Right? He was delivered over verse, the next verse, verse five, chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified, declared not guilty through what? Through faith. We'll get to that in a minute. We have what? 
We are now complete, joined together, whole with God through Jesus Christ, right? He goes on to say, is that the last one there? All right, very good. You and I now have our right standing with God through who? Through Jesus. Why does Paul say, listen, your feet should always be bound to be ready to preach the gospel of peace, right? Because the gospel makes me right with God. How are those people ever going to find themselves to be right with God when the people that are delivering the news don't want to be right with them? It won't work. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul says, For God was pleased to have all in his fullness dwell in Jesus. And through him, guess what he did? He reconciled to himself what? All things. Here's the problem. How many of the all things actually know they've been reconciled to God? Not very many. I mean, just look how many empty chairs we have here. Come on the weekend and watch and see how many empty chairs we have. Right? Do you think all things know they've been reconciled to God? No. Guess whose job it is to tell them? It's ours. Your feet should be shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace. He says he reconciled all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And how did he do it? He made what? Peace through his blood shed on the cross. Listen, we made, we were made whole, complete, right? Full with God through Jesus. And he's done that for all things. We need to, we need to be telling all things that, right? All things in regard to that. How about this verse? Romans chapter eight, verse six, right? Romans chapter eight, verse six, Paul says, the mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit. Stop. If you know Jesus tonight, have accepted him as your Lord and savior, say amen. You, according to scripture, right, have been filled with God's Holy Spirit. The mind controlled by the spirit of God is the by the Spirit of God, everybody online, everybody here, read this with me, is what? Life? Think about it. Think about all the things that your mind thinks and all the things that your mouth says and ask yourself, am I a person that's allowing the Spirit to control my life and my peace? Listen, for so many Christian people, it's just not. I mean, just listen to the conversations. Listen to the words. But he says the mind of the sinful man is what? Death, separation. But the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. Do you want to measure yourself in regard to submission to the Holy Spirit and obedience to him? Ask yourself, are people around me given life and peace? Or do they want to walk away and do they feel like there's death been given to them? Separation, right? Something that doesn't bring life. How about this verse in Galatians 5.22? Just to confirm the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Top three. Top three. Written in order. Love, joy, peace. Listen, if you've got the Spirit, you should be a person that promotes peace. Not division. And I'll show it to you. Romans chapter, skip Romans 14 real quick. I want to end with that. Go to Ephesians 4, the one right after that one, right? Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 to the church in regard to peace. He says, a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life that's worthy of the calling that you've received. We've all received a calling in Jesus. Look what he says about this calling. Be completely humble. How humble? We could just preach that, right? Humility. Be completely humble because none of this is going to work without humility. And be what? Ain't going to be gentle if you're not humble. Pride's never gentle. Pride is rambunctious and destructive. He says be humble and gentle and then be what? Yep. Patient. Yep. Don't let it get you down. Don't let it break you. Can't get there if you're not humble and gentle. But he says, be patient. Bear with one another in what? Love, right? Now listen to this. Make every effort. How much effort? Every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which is about love, joy, and peace, right? 
A mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of what? Peace. Listen, you want to know one of the greatest ways we defeat the schemes of the devil? Is that we make sure there's no divisions among us. Zero. Zero. No divisions. What about disagreements? You figure out how to disagree without being divisive. That's all. And sometimes you got to learn to not get your way. That's all there is to it. Right? Ain't no such thing as compromise. That's just a good word for a person that lost the fight. Right? Somebody wins, somebody loses. And the reality is this, that if you want to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, sometimes you've got to be completely humble. You've got to be gentle and you've got to be patient and you've got to show love, which says that others are more important than you. And then make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit with the bond of peace. Man, you want to measure how mature you are in Christ? Measure the relationships you have around me, around you. Are they divisive? Are they peaceful? Are they whole? Are they complete? Man, it says a lot about you. It says a lot about me. All right, let me, let me just show you a practical one that Paul wrote about in Romans 14. Let's go back to that one, Jess. Romans 14, Paul's addressing all these people that have come to faith in all of these carnal worlds, right? All these non-religious worlds, right? And they're trying to figure out how to live a Christian life. He says, so they're arguing, right? They're arguing over meat, right? So all these temples out in these cities like Rome and Corinth, right? Had all these temples that were designed for you and I, for people like you and I to worship false gods. You go, right? You worship, you sacrifice, right? And then what would happen is those temples to these false gods needed to make money. So they would sell meat, right? That would let be left over from sacrifices. They would sell this meat, right? At a discount rate to anybody that wanted it. And they would help supplant their income. So what was happening was Christians were arguing over that. Listen, if you're a Christian, you don't buy meat at Aldi's, right? If you're a Christian, you buy meat at Publix, right? And they were arguing over that. You can't go to this temple and buy meat. If you're a Christian, you go to this temple. And the other people would say, listen, if you're a Christian, you know that there is no other God. So this meat is a re- is not tainted because they're only worshiping a God that doesn't exist. So buy the meat. It'll save your family money. And they were dividing over it. And here's what Paul writes. Let's stop passing judgment on one another. Right? Stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind to what? Not put a stumbling block or an obstacle in your brother's way. He says... As one who's in the Lord Jesus, I'm fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. Saying, listen, the meat at the temple and the meat that isn't at the temple of the false God, it's all the same. He says, I'm convinced of that. But, everybody say but. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it's unclean. Right? So this family says, I could never eat meat sacrificed or bought at a temple that was designed to sacrifice to a false god. I could never do it. Well, to that person, that meat then is what? Unclean. Don't buy it. Right? Right? Check this out. He says, if your brother, right, or your sister is distressed because of what you eat, because you think that meat's just fine, right? What does he say? He says... If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in what? Love, right? Love, love considers others more important than themselves. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. He says, don't allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil, right? For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, But what is it of? Of righteousness and what? Peace. There's a real practical way. Right? Does that make sense to you? Listen, if our feet are shod with the readiness of the gospel of peace and our minds are controlled by the spirit, our job is to bring what? Peace. Everybody say peace. Peace. Which means, listen, 
I love music. Let's just pick music. I love music. I like all kinds of music. Well, I don't like every kind of music, but I like all kinds of music. Right? I like, listen, I like rock and roll. Right? I like it. I also like Barry Manilow. Get over it. Right? But I like some songs that I listened to when I was 17. Right? Listen, I don't know all the words because I'm half deaf. But anytime I hear the start of the song from ACDC, Hell's Bells, I am like thumping my foot, cranking the music, right? And I know that some of you are like, see, I knew there was something wrong with Pastor Cord. You're right, okay? But here's what he says. If you think that listening to ACDC's Hell's Bells is wrong because of your faith in Jesus, then if I actually want to promote peace, I will never do that to cause you to stumble. That's what it means. And I can say to you, listen, I'm sorry you feel that way, but you're just going to have to get over it. I learned this lesson when I was graduated from college. I love wearing my hair long. I wish you could have seen me in my heyday when I had long hair and a ponytail, right? I love having long hair. If I could do it today, I probably would, right? And so I used to wear my hair long. And I used to not make apologies for it. And I remember my first church I was at, somebody pulled me aside and said, you need to get your hair cut. And I remember having this argument with this person because I thought it was about my hair. What I found out over time was it wasn't about hair. It was about whether I wanted to cause my brother or sister to stumble. Because the gospel is a gospel of righteousness and what? Peace. And you say, well, that's stupid, Court. Is it? Scripture just said it wasn't stupid. Matter of fact, scripture says it's so important in the act of keeping the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that I won't do anything to cause my brother to stumble. Drinking. I mean, can we all just be clear here that the Bible is against getting drunk? Yes. Right? Can we all be clear here that the Bible does not condemn having a drink? Okay, four of you. Great, right? But that's what I'm saying. Some people within the church say, never, ever drink at all. Other people think it's fine to enjoy some white wine with some fish, right? Or a red wine with some steak. Or after we mow the lawn on a hot day, we have a cold beer, right? And guess what? People in church divide over that stuff all the time. Why not just do this? Why not just decide that I'll never do anything to cause my brother or sister to stumble? If you want to have a beer because you think it's okay, have a beer in your house. But if you're around your brother or sister who, who doesn't like it, how about just drinking lemonade? Because the Bible says, isn't it more important to provide peace than it is to do anything else? And listen, if church people actually treated one another that way, do you know how much more attractive that church would be to the people in the world? A million times more. And listen, you can argue and fuss and fight about it all you want, but scripture can't, won't let you get away from it because that's the way scripture teaches us because love considers others more important than themselves. Listen, you, let's ignore that. Okay. Right. I just want to be clear that, that the readiness of our message is the gospel of peace. Amen. Amen. Real quick, shield size, right? Roman, Roman soldiers carried two shields, right? They had a round circular one that was a smaller one. And then they had this massive one, a massive one that was a little over two feet long or two feet wide and a little over four feet long, right? A scuda, right? They called it, right? And these, these wooden shields, right? Covered in pitch, right? These shields were designed for protection for these Roman soldiers, right? You can go on the internet, look them up. I didn't need to show you a picture. But this was basically a body-length shield, 
right? And so Paul says, right? He says, we need to take up, right? This shield. He says in verse 16, I just want to read it to you. He says, right? In addition to everything else, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, I'm going to give you just a little bit of Greek. So you might as well, you ought to be used to it by now, right? So he says, take up your shield of faith. In the Greek, that is a participle. That's an aorist participle. And here's what it means. It means that the action described in this word has to happen before the primary verb of the sentence. Does that make sense to everybody? That there's two actions here. There's one action that has to take place first before the second one can take place. I saw that verse. Oh, if you can find Ephesians uh, 6, 16, that'll be right at the beginning, right? She's amazing, right? He says, in addition to all this, everybody read these two words. So this is the Greek that is an aorist participle. And what this means is this action has to happen before the primary action. What's the primary action? In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith. Next verse. With which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So before you can extinguish the arrows of the enemy, you have to take up your shield of what? Faith. Listen to what Hebrews eleven six says. Hebrews eleven six says this about faith, right? The writer of Hebrews says, without faith, without faith, it is what? Come on, say a word again. Impossible to please God. How important is faith? Think it's important? Hugely important, right? Let's define faith. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 says this about faith. Faith, faith, Greek, pistis, persuasion, right? Faith is being sure. Everybody say sure. Sure of what we hope for, meaning we hope for heaven and redemption. Amen. Are you sure about that? Because faith is what? Sure of what we hope for. You want to defeat the enemy? Have faith because faith is sureness of what we hope for. Do you hope to get to heaven someday, church? Right? Are you sure about that? Because if you are, that's faith. But faith is also what? And it's certain of what we what? Of what we do not see. That's a lot harder, isn't it? Because the Bible says we walk by faith and we walk, we walk by faith and not by sight. Listen, the most, the most complicated part of this whole thing is learning how to be certain of what we can't see. Right? How do we do that? Well, the Bible's clear about how God produces it. Right? God produces it through his word. Right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Why should you, why should you submit yourself to teaching? Right? Why should you submit yourself to being here on the weekends or watching or being a part of a group or a Bible study? Why should you read your Bible? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Somebody say amen. Right? You might as well know that the way God's going to find out whether you got any faith is he's going to test it. Right? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces blank. Right? God's going to test it. Listen, you're going to have to develop your faith because you can't please God without it. And you know it's got to fill this gap between what you see and what you don't see. And the gap has got to be full of certainty. That takes a lot of faith. Let's read a couple of verses here. Hebrews 10, 36 and 39. I want to connect two words to you, right? You need to persevere that when you, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised, right? Listen to what he says. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but, are, but we are of those who what? Believe and are saved. Amen. That's us. Faith. Faith does not allow us to shrink back because we're sure of what we hope for. Right. And we're certain of what we don't see. So we don't shrink back. Do you think you're going to need a strong faith for that church? 
You bet you are. You're going to need a strong faith for that. You're going to need the word of God in your life. If you don't have the word of God in your life, you are not growing in your faith. I don't care how much you serve. I don't care how much you pray. And I don't care how much you give. If the word of God is not actively in your life, you will not have any faith. Hi, Shelby. I knew faith is the assurance of what we can't see. I knew you were coming. Right? 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 Listen to Galatians 5 now. I want to connect these two words as we leave, right? Listen, our feet should be shod with the readiness, right, of the gospel of peace. Amen? Amen? Because the spirit is love, joy, peace. The mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. And you know what we do? We do whatever we can to bring peace. And if that means choosing not to do something so my brother or my sister won't stumble, we choose not to do that. Somebody say amen. That's what we do. He says about faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Nothing done by hands has a value. Listen to this. I want everybody online. I want everybody in here to read this with me out loud. The only thing that counts is what? You want to know? You want to know what kind of faith you have? Ask yourself what kind of love you express because the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts, this is an accounting word. The only thing that adds up is if your faith expresses itself through what love, not how we feel, but what we do, right? Love is patient. Love is kind, right? It doesn't seek its own. It doesn't keep track of wrongs, right? Love always forgives, always perseveres, always moves forward. Love never fails, always wants what's truth. You see, the shield of faith is a wonderful thing. But do you want to know how big your shield is? Ask yourself, what kind of love do I express to other people? Because the only thing that counts is if our faith expresses itself through what? <clears throat> a couple more scriptures. Second Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.3 says this. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers. And rightly so, because your faith, check this out, connecting, your faith is growing more and more. And the love every one of you has for each other is what? There's no, listen, there's no doubt when you read scripture. You want to know? How much faith is growing in you? Ask yourself how much more loving you are to people. And I'm not talking about how you feel. I don't care how you feel. It's not a measurement of your faith. I care about what you do. Love doesn't seek its own. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not keep track of wrongs. Don't tell me your faith is great and your love is non-existent. Because those two things do not go together, according to scripture. You can sit in church all you want and listen to amazing preaching on Wednesday night. Just kidding. You can do all those things, but if you aren't growing in your love, your faith is not growing either. Because the only thing that matters is that your faith expresses itself in what? You want to know this? How's my relationship with the Lord? Measure this. This is how we do it. We measure this. This is what binds this together. Otherwise, there's no measurement. And we, listen, for centuries and decades and forever, we've separated those two things at church. And we made this a measurement. And we made this a measurement. And we went, as long as this is good, we'll tolerate this. Scripture does not tolerate those two. It says these two are connected. Faith expresses itself in love, right? How about this verse? First John five, one through five. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, say amen. amen. It says you're born of God and everyone who loves the father loves what? Do you know how many divisions there should be in the church? Do you know how many divisions there should be in the church? Come on, say it. None. Because if you love God, you love who? 
you love the child as well. Does that mean you agree with everything they do? Nope. But love considers the other person more important than themselves. That church will be attractive to that world out there. Because that world is lost and fractured and it needs to be whole. They do that by finding Jesus who makes them whole with God. And listen, the majority of those people find it in church. Let's be a church like that. Amen? He says, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. You want to know how this works? Do it this way. Right? He goes on to say this. This is love for God. To obey his commands and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome this world. Even our faith. Listen, this... Man, this is, this is, makes us born of God. This confirms that. How about this verse in James 2, 14 through 17? James writes, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith, but has no what? If this doesn't exist, he says, can such faith, faith like this, Without this, can this faith save him? He says this, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If anyone says to that person, go and I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? He says, in the same way, faith, I believe in Jesus, I trust in God, my faith is great. If my faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by this, is dead. When Paul says, take up your shield of faith, you want to know how to measure it? I was in church five times last week. I went on four mission trips last year. I gave 10% of my income. Good for you. But did this produce any of this? And here's, just so we're clear what it means, John says it this way in 1 John 3, 16. Here's my last verse. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. You want to measure it? You want to measure it? It's really simple. Have you laid down your life for other people? That's how you measure it. Paul says, or John says, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone's got material possessions, sees a brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God even be in that person? Dear children, let's not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And this is his command, to believe in the name of the Son of God, in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to what? Love one another as he commanded. Listen, you want to measure your shield of faith? Great. This isn't enough. This isn't enough. He said, this is it. To believe that Jesus is the son of God and to love. To love. Your shield of faith is really easy to measure. How much love do you have for the people around you? How much are you willing to lay down your life for those people? And listen, we have got to get over this notion of how we feel. How we feel is irrelevant. Because the mind controlled by the spirit is love and joy and peace. Amen, church? Right? So we're going to close up shop next week on this, and we're going to cover the helmet of salvation, right? And the sword of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, uh, let's thank you for this writing, this truth, and I thank you for our church. Lord, I want to be a church that holds to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he is our Lord and Savior. I want to hold to the truth of your word, but I want to be a part of a church that has shod their feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace. And I want to be a part of the church that understands that the size of my shield is dependent upon the sacrifice of my love. Because we have a world out there that's fractured, lost, seeking fulfillment and completion in a world that's simply going to destroy them. We have the remedy that's found in Jesus. Make us a church, Lord, that appeals to those people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church.